Welcome to episode 253 of the TruthQuest podcast, The Truth About Affirmative Action, The Majority Opinion. The Supreme Court recently issued a majority opinion on a case that essentially ends race-based admission standards at universities. The case, Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. v. President and Fellows of Harvard College, or generally called the Affirmative Action case, revolved around admission standards at the University of North Carolina and Harvard, whereby they favored minority applicants over Caucasian and Asian applicants. So let's start with a brief overview of affirmative action. It really came to light in the late 1960s as a way of making sure that skilled blacks in the construction industry were hired for federal projects and contracts. What's the key word in that sentence? Skilled. You had to be qualified. You had to be skilled in order to win a contract. Then affirmative action was hijacked by liberals who morphed it into a Marxist equity bullshit that you hear today. So you get what we have in the Supreme Court case. Less qualified black and Hispanic kids being accepted to prestigious schools over better qualified white and Asian kids. Advocates for affirmative action argue that it is necessary in order to right historical injustices, slavery, discrimination, etc. It's necessary to give minority groups a leg up. You know, equity. Silly you if you thought the goal should be equal opportunity. That is not at all the goal. Equal outcomes is the goal. Harvard argued that their admission process, the one that discriminates against whites and Asians, was necessary in order to train future leaders, prepare graduates to, quote, adapt to an increasingly pluralistic society, better educate its students through diversity, and produce new knowledge stemming from diverse outlooks. Carolina pointed to similar benefits, namely, quote, promoting the robust exchange of ideas, broadening and refining understanding, fostering innovation and problem solving, preparing engaged and productive citizens and leaders, and enhancing appreciation, respect, and empathy, cross-racial understanding, and breaking down stereotypes. One can only conclude that advocates for affirmative action believe one of two things, or both. One, blacks and Hispanics are, as a group, inferior to whites and Asians, and or America is so inherently racist that minorities will never be able to succeed without the help of the state. This, of course, can never be remedied. There is no cure. We must continue discriminating, and by discrimination, they mean good discrimination, and it must go on in perpetuity. Let's look at some hard numbers, which is difficult in an audio medium like this, but nonetheless important. These are Harvard's admittance statistics. The top 10% performing Asian applicants, that's basically their GPA and whatever admittance test they took, the uh, SAT or ACT, they had just under a 13% chance of being admitted to Harvard. The top 10% performing white students had a 15% chance the top 10% performing Hispanics had a 31% chance, and the top 10 performing Blacks had 56 So obviously there's a clear distinction here. 13%, 15 31 56 Now what about if you performed better than 40% of the incoming class instead of the 10%? Whites had a less than 2% chance of getting in. Asians had a less than 1% chance. Hispanics, 5% chance and Blacks about a 13% chance. So what does that mean? That means if you're an African-American applicant that performed better than 40% of the population, you have a better chance of getting accepted than an Asian applicant who performed better than 90% of the population. 
That is the very definition of discrimination. An underperforming student is offered admission over an overperforming student primarily based on their skin pigmentation. This begs the question, why have standards at all? UNC and Harvard are considered elite educational institutions because of their standards and the accomplishments of their alumni. How do you remain elite if you lower your standards? Further, why is it considered a bad thing if a minority kid is denied acceptance to a particular college? They don't belong there based on the academic standards of that particular institution. They are better off going to a different school with lower standards where they can presumably fare better in their academic pursuits. There have been numerous studies over the years performed on the effect of affirmative action on minority students, but in particular those that aren't necessarily qualified. The overwhelming conclusion is that underqualified black students are more likely to drop out of school when accepted to a premier academic institution. And there's other studies that show that they're less likely to pass the bar exam and things like that. In Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion, he leans on Thomas Sowell by arguing affirmative action policies do nothing to increase the overall number of blacks and Hispanics able to access a college education. Rather, those racial policies simply redistribute individuals among institutions of higher learning, placing some into more competitive institutions than they otherwise would have attended. In doing so, those policies sort at least some Blacks and Hispanics into environments where they are less likely to succeed academically relative to their peers. The resulting mismatch places, quote, many Blacks and Hispanics who likely would have excelled at less elite schools in a position where underperformance is all but inevitable because they are less academically prepared than the white and Asian students with whom they must compete, end quote. So here we are again with another example of leftists and Democrats claiming to help a particular constituency with their policy prescriptions while actually harming some of them. So that's some background on affirmative action. For the rest of this episode, I'm going to walk through John Roberts' majority opinion and Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion. And in the following episode, I'm going to look at the dissent's opinion. Roberts and Thomas both spend a considerable amount of time acknowledging the history of race relations in America. That, of course, is necessary in order to address the left's nonsensical claim of systemic racism. Roberts writes, Despite our early recognition of the broad sweep of the Equal Protection Clause, this court, alongside the country, quickly failed to live up to the clause's core commitments. For almost a century after the Civil War, state-mandated segregation was in many parts of the nation a regrettable norm. This court played its own role in that ignoble history, allowing in Plessy v. Ferguson the separate but equal regime that would come to deface much of America. The culmination of this approach came finally in Brown v. Board of Education. The conclusion reached by the Brown court was thus unmistakably clear. The right to a public education must be made available to all on equal terms. As the plaintiffs had argued, quote, no state has any authority under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to use race as a factor in affording educational opportunities among its citizens. And as some of you may know, following the Brown case, the court began striking down all sorts of race-based state actions, including invalidating state and local laws that required segregation and busing. They struck down racial segregation on public beaches and bathhouses in Maryland. They had laws dividing parks and golf courses, neighborhoods and businesses, buses and trains, schools and juries were all undone over the course of a few years. Roberts continues, The Equal Protection Clause clearly states that everyone is to be treated the same based on their race, 
It is to be applied universally. Proposed by Congress and ratified by the states in the wake of the Civil War, the 14th Amendment provides that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. Accordingly, as this court's early decision interpreting the Equal Protection Clause explained, the 14th Amendment guaranteed, quote, that the law in the states shall be the same for the blacks as for the whites, that all persons, whether colored or white, shall stand equal before the laws of the states, end quote. He goes on to quote from a case called McLaughlin versus Florida, quote, the central purpose of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment is the prevention of official conduct discriminating on the basis of race. He states further, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Accordingly, the court has held that the Equal Protection Clause applies without regard to any difference of race, of color, or of nationality. It is universal in application. For the guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of a different color. The entire point of the Equal Protection Clause is that treating someone differently because of their skin color is not like treating them differently because they're from a different city or suburb or because they play the violin poorly or well. End quote. Now remember that list of benefits that Harvard and Carolina provided, I read to you at the beginning of the episode. Well, Roberts argued that while those are commendable goals, they are immeasurable. In other words, he politely called bullshit. This is a teachable moment. The left specifically, but the establishment generally, loves generic, flowery, feel-good language because it affords them the opportunity to lambaste and shout down anyone who opposes them. You're opposed to better educating students through diversity? What kind of scumbag is against preparing engaged and productive citizens and leaders? How can you be opposed to the Inflation Reduction Act or the Patriot Act? Roberts observes the arbitrary nature of the respondents' quest for educational diversity, specifically the category Hispanic. He questions why there is no category for Middle Eastern students. He asks why Asians is not broken out into East and South Asians. When asked at oral arguments, quote, how are applicants from Middle Eastern countries classified, such as Jordan, Iran, Iraq, and Egypt, UNC's counsel responded, I do not know the answer to that question. In their concurring opinion, Justice Thomas and Gorsuch piled on. Thomas calls the respondents' racial categories oversimplistic. Gorsuch argues, quote, their affirmative action programs do not help Jews, Irish, Polish, or other white ethnic groups whose ancestors face discrimination upon arrival in America any more than they help the descendants of those Japanese-American citizens interned during World War II. End quote. Roberts calls the racial categories opaque. Gorsuch calls them incoherent and irrational stereotypes. Roberts goes on with this explanation of why affirmative action should not survive. Quote, respondents' race-based admissions systems also fail to comply with the Equal Protection Clause's twin commands that race may never be used as a negative and it may not operate as a stereotype, end quote. The point being, because admission is a zero-sum game, if one gets in, one does not. That's a negative. Roberts derides the use of stereotypes. He says, when a university admits students on the basis of race, it engages in the offensive and demeaning assumption that students of a particular race, because of their race, think alike. Such stereotyping is contrary to the core purpose of the Equal Protection Clause. 
He goes on, Harvard's admissions process rests on the pernicious stereotypes that, quote, a black student can usually bring something that a white person cannot offer. UNC is the same. It argues that race in itself, quote, says something about who you are, end quote. I don't know about you, but that sounds racist. Roberts addresses the idea of racial balancing with this, quote, The respondent measures their success of racial diversity by comparing each class to previous classes. The problem with the approach is well established. Outright racial balancing is patently unconstitutional. Robert concludes his majority opinion this way. For the reasons provided above, the Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. Both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warning the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. Many universities have for too long wrongly concluded that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. This nation's constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Let's dive into Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion. And let's be honest here, he should have authored the majority opinion. It's almost as if he was born to write this opinion. I also want to put my biases on the table here. I am a huge fan of Thomas. He is by far the best justice when it comes to interpreting the Constitution. He is unwavering. He is articulate and, as you will see, has an innate ability to hit you between the eyes with his written words. He is a true national treasure that the left and Democrats hate because they cannot compete with him intellectually, so they choose the coward's route to assassinate his character instead. Check out episode 139, The Truth About Clarence Thomas, The Master Dissenter, if you're interested in a deep dive into his career. Similar to Robert's majority opinion, Thomas starts with a brief history lesson, starting with, he explains, the second founding of the nation with the abolishment of slavery. Citing Harlan's dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, because of the second founding, quote, our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens, end quote. He walks the reader through the period of Black Codes, Jim Crow, then Brown v. Board of Education, and another case called Gruder v. Bollinger, which was in 2003, in which he partially joined the majority but also authored a dissenting opinion. Quote, Gutter v. Bollinger permitted universities to discriminate based on race in their admissions process, though only temporarily, in order to achieve alleged educational benefits of diversity. Yet the Constitution continues to embody a simple truth. Two discriminatory wrongs cannot make a right. He then goes on to explain why he wrote this concurring opinion. I write separately to offer an originalist defense of the colorblind Constitution, to explain further the flaws of the court's gruder jurisdiction, to clarify that all forms of discrimination based on race, including so-called affirmative action, are prohibited under the Constitution, and to emphasize the pernicious effects of all such discrimination. How can you not love this guy? He goes on, the 14th Amendment ensures racial equality with no textual references to race whatsoever. The history of these measures' enactment renders their motivating principles as clear as their text. All citizens of the United States, regardless of skin color, are equal before the law. After a lengthy history lesson where Thomas walks through the absolute nature of the 14th Amendment, he attacks the anti-subordination view of the 14th Amendment, which the respondents argued, and Sotomayor brought into her dissent. 
This is the idea that, quote, the amendment forbids only laws that hurt but not help blacks. He goes on to say, quote, such a theory lacks any basis in the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, end quote. Then he proves his case by citing language in various pieces of legislation, none of which specifically state that the laws are meant to protect blacks exclusively, basically shredding the anti-subordination view. This is yet another example of the left just making shit up because they can't win the debate on their agenda on its own merits. Thomas continues with, quote, three aspects of today's decision warrant comment. First, to satisfy strict scrutiny, universities must be able to establish an actual link between racial discrimination and educational benefits. Second, those engaged in racial discrimination do not deserve deference with respect to their reasons for discriminating. And third, attempts to remedy past governmental discrimination must be closely tailored to address that particular past government discrimination. He points to the grab bag of beneficial reasons mentioned in the majority opinion given by the respondents and agrees that they are vague and immeasurable. He takes a jab at the respondents saying, quote, with nearly 50 years to develop their arguments, neither Harvard nor UNC, two of the foremost research institutions in the world, nor any of the amici briefs can explain that critical link. In other words, no one's ever been able to articulate the educational benefits of diversity. They just keep saying educational benefits of diversity over and over again. Of course not, because that's not the goal. The goal is to drive a wedge in the populace, black versus white, or I guess in this case, it's blacks versus everyone else. You need to understand the Democrats need to maintain that 90 plus percentage of the black vote, or they will cease to win national elections. Why do you think they have been going balls to the wall with this voter drive at the border for the last two and a half years? They are attempting to replace their voter base with illegal immigrants, offering them perpetual welfare in return for their votes because a large number of voters have fled the doomsday cult formerly known as the Democratic Party. Check out episode 143, The Truth About the Massive Voter Drive at the Border, if you're interested in that. Thomas smacks Harvard around for their claim that one of their goals is, quote, producing new knowledge stemming from diverse outlooks. He writes, quote, It may be the case that exposure to different perspectives and thoughts can foster debate, sharpen young minds, and hone students' reasoning skills. But it is not clear how diversity with respect to race furthers this goal. Two white students, one from rural Appalachian and one from wealthy San Francisco suburb, may well have more diverse outlooks than two students from Manhattan's Upper East Side attending the most elite schools, one of whom is white and the other of whom is black. If Harvard cannot even explain the link between racial diversity and education, then surely its interest in racial diversity cannot be compelling enough to overcome the constitutional limits on race consciousness, end quote. He then turns his attention to UNC, who asserted that they had an interest in training students to, quote, live together in a diverse society. He writes, quote, this may well be important to a university experience, but it is a social goal, not an educational one. He points to Anthony Scalia's comments in the Grutter case, calling these types of claims divorced from educational goals. And then the money quote. And again, UNC offers no reasons why seeking a diverse society would not be equally supported by admitting individuals with diverse perspectives and backgrounds rather than varying skin pigmentation. Oh my goodness. In other words, the left is obsessed with skin color. Thomas won't say it, but I will. These people who go around calling everyone else who disagrees with them racist 
are the real racist because that's all they see is skin color. Thomas goes on, universities' self-proclaimed righteousness does not afford them license to discriminate on the basis of race. Then he goes on one of his epic rants, slapping around both Harvard and UNC for their historical discriminatory practices. This is absolutely glorious. He writes, in the 1920s, Harvard discriminated against Jewish applicants and was heavily involved in the eugenics movement. According to then-president Abbott Lawrence Lowell, excluding Jews from Harvard would help maintain admissions opportunities for Gentiles and perpetrate the purity of the Brahmin race. Damn, Clarence, that is a brutal takedown. That's nothing compared to his takedown of UNC. Check this out. Quote, UNC has a checkered history, dating back to its time as a segregated university. It admitted its first black undergraduate students in 1955, but only after being ordered to do so by a court, following a long legal battle in which UNC sought to keep its segregated status. Even then, UNC did not turn on a dime. The first three black students admitted as undergraduates enrolled at UNC, but ultimately earned their bachelor's degree elsewhere. He finishes this written lashing with, quote, The university respondents' history hardly recommend them to trustworthy arbiters of whether racial discrimination is necessary to achieve educational goals. Again, how can you not love this guy? He's just calling them out. You guys were racist before. What's to keep you from being racist now? He then turns his focus on the respondent's argument that the 14th Amendment permits the use of race to benefit only certain racial groups rather than applicants writ large. In another epic written barrage, Thomas argues, quote, Yet this is just another latest disguise for discrimination. The sudden narrative shift is not surprising, as it has long been apparent that diversity was merely the current rationale of convenience to support racially discriminatory admissions programs. Thomas is having none of their verbal jujitsu. Quote, the court refuses to engage in this lexiographic drift, seeing these arguments for what they are, a remedial rationale in disguise, end quote. He continues, without such guardrails, referring to the strict scrutiny standard required by the court, the 14th Amendment would become self-defeating, promising a nation based on the equality ideal, but yielding a quota or caste-ridden society steeped in race-based discrimination. He goes on, Harvard and UNC now forthrightly state that they racially discriminate when it comes to admitting students, arguing that such discrimination is consistent with this court's precedence. And they, along with today's dissenters, defend that discrimination as good. More broadly, it is becoming increasingly clear that the discrimination on the basis of race, often packaged as affirmative action or equity programs, are based on a benighted notion that it is possible to tell when discrimination helps rather than hurts racial minorities. So basically, Thomas recognizes the left's tactic of hijacking the language, the narrative shift he referenced, and he's having none of it. He then states, the Constitution's colorblind rule reflects one of the core principles upon which our nation was founded, that all men are created equal. Those words featured prominently in our Declaration of Independence, he says, and were inspired by a rich tradition of political thinkers like Locke and Montesquieu, who considered equality to be the foundation of a just government. As Lincoln recognized, the promise of equality extended to all people, including immigrants and blacks whose ancestors had taken no part in the original founding. 
Under the 14th Amendment, he says, quote, the color of a person's skin is irrelevant to their individual's equal status as a citizen of this nation. To treat him differently on the basis of such a legally irrelevant trait is therefore a deviation from the equality principle and a constitutional injury. We must adhere to the promise of equality under the law declared by the Declaration of Independence and codified by the 14th Amendment. Then Thomas states the obvious. Well, obvious to free-thinking, intellectually honest people. Quote, Today's 17-year-olds did not live through the Jim Crow era, enact or enforce segregation laws, or take any action to oppress or enslave the victims of the past. Whatever their skin color, today's youth simply are not responsible for instituting the segregation of the 20th century, and they do not shoulder the moral debts of their ancestors. Our nation should not punish today's youth for the sins of the past, end quote. The fact that Thomas felt compelled to include that piece of sixth grade logic tells us a lot about the vacuous nature of the affirmative action advocates, specifically leftists, but liberals in general. There is no intellectual curiosity. It's just all slogans and feelings. Finally, Thomas tackles the end game of affirmative action. Quote, what then would be the end point of these affirmative action policies? Not racial harmony, integration, or equality under the law. Rather, these policies appear to be leading to a world in which everyone is defined by their skin color, demanding ever-increasing entitlements and preferences on that basis. Not only is that exactly the kind of factionalism that the Constitution was meant to safeguard against, see Federalist Number 10, but it is a factionalism based on ever-shifting sands. He goes on, that is because race is a social construct. We may each identify as members of a particular race for any number of reasons, having to do with our skin color, our heritage, or our cultural identity. To explain this social construct comment, he points out that the emissions applications have boxes that you check for your race. Those labels on the boxes are constructed by the institution. It's a social construct. He employs what is elusive to the left, but not to him, intellectual curiosity by posing a question. What box does someone from the Philippines check? I can't think of a better way to conclude this episode than with the two concluding paragraphs from Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion. Quote, the court sees the university's admission policies for what they are, rudderless race-based preferences designed to ensure a particular racial mix in their entering classes. These policies fly in the face of our colorblind constitution and our nation's equality ideal. In short, they are plainly and boldly unconstitutional. While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles so clearly enunciated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States that all men are created equal and equal citizens and must be treated equally before the law. And that's the truth about affirmative action, the majority opinion. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share episodes with your friends.